Well, with the time change, when I get up here to speak, it's quite deceptive. I look at the clock at the back, and I see it's only 11.12, and I think to myself, I can go for some time. In fact, it was interesting. I came here last night. There has been some evangelistic events, some Chinese evangelistic events here at the church, and I showed up around 10 o'clock last night. The church was absolutely packed with uh, the whole balcony filled, the sides full, and everybody here. But at 10 o'clock, the preacher was still going, and I met Pastor Joe out in the foyer, and I said, what time is this wrapping up? And he said, well, the speaker started preaching at 8, and I'm like, it's 10. He's like, yeah, he's been going for two hours. We sang from 7 to 8, and then now we've been sitting through a two-hour sermon. So I left at that point. I don't know if Pastor Joe is back in the sanctuary, if he's dried off yet, but I'm still curious how long he still went. Because he was not done at 8 o'clock. But I promise you I will not give you a two-hour sermon this morning. In fact, my message is a little bit shorter this morning because of some of the other things that have happened in the service today. But you can ask Pastor Joe after to find out how long that service went. So I'm going to start with a question that might seem like a dumb question. But once I move on a little bit, hopefully you will think about the question a little bit differently. And that is, how would you like to take your hand and place it on a hot stove and burn it and feel that pain as your hand sizzles on the stove. Now, of course, every one of you are saying, what a ridiculous question. Of course, I wouldn't want to do that. Of course, I wouldn't want to feel my hand roast on a stove. Well, what if I said this? Okay, how would you like to place your hand on a stove that is hot and burning, put your hand on that and not feel it burn. Well, think about that for a second. The second scenario may seem more pleasant, but the consequences of the second scenario are extremely more severe. Uh, Dr. Paul Brent has worked with lepers in India. And in one of his books, he says that pain is a blessing. When you work with lepers, you realize quickly how much of a blessing pain is. A leper can lose all feeling in their hands, in their limbs. It's possible for a leper to step on a sharp object even to lose a toe, it's possible for a leper to put their hand on a burning stove, not feel that it is burning, and have devastating consequences to their limbs, to their fingers, to their hands. Infections can set in on an open wound, and a leper can bleed to death. Uh, Working with lepers, Paul Brandt recognized and reminds all of us that pain is a blessing. That pain that you feel that says, ow, take your hand off that, is a warning, is a blessing, is there to protect you. Feeling your flesh burn when you touch a hot stove is telling you something important. It's telling you that something is wrong. It's warning you of danger. It's the body's way of defending itself. And this is not only true for physical pain, but it's often quite true for psychological pain. 
emotional pain, spiritual pain. C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It gets our attention. It tells us that not everything is in order. We've all felt guilt when we've done something wrong, that, that sickness, that uncomfortable feeling inside that gnaws away. As non-Christians, sometimes we feel that when we go to church. We hear the message of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us and the consequences of sin in our life. And we get that restlessness, that heavy heart, that feeling of emptiness, so that feeling of guilt. In fact, that's some of the reason why some people want to stay away from church. They don't want to feel that pain. And in some ways, they become like spiritual lepers. The pain's still there. They're just not allowing themselves to feel it. At other times, they try to numb the pain with ulterior drugs that are available. Maybe they lose themselves in the religion of internet gaming or chat rooms, or just working longer hours, drinking, or excessive sleep, all as ways to avoid the pain. Or maybe they try to find a faith like Buddhism to convince them that pain is really just an illusion. But pain is still there, whether we try to deny it, hide from it, run from it, it's still there, and it calls out to us. It is God's warning mechanism. It's that megaphone warning us something is wrong. Augustine said that our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. There's a restlessness within us. It doesn't seem to be satisfied with anything else other than temporarily. It's restless until it finds rest in the source of rest, the fulfillment of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, the one who is our true rest. Some have referred to this as God-shaped hole that we all have in our hearts. Ecclesiastes says, God has planted, planted eternity in our hearts. Acts reads, in God we live and move and exist. We live, move, and exist in God whether we acknowledge it or not. Just like a fish live, moves, and exists in the water. Whether the fish acknowledges it or not. If two fish are talking and one fish says to the other fish, I don't believe in water, it doesn't really matter. Because the only way it can even say, I don't believe in water, is the fact that the water is keeping it alive to be able to say that. Even Gentiles, Romans says, who do not have God's written law, instinctively follow that, what that law says. They show that their hearts know right from wrong. There's something in us. A moral compass that knows right, that knows wrong, and we often use that standard on other people. 
Francis Schaeffer used to explain this by saying, imagine that you had something attached to your own body. And that something recorded all through your life, every single time you said to another person, that's not fair. You shouldn't do that. And then at the end of your life, that was played back to you, and you were held to that same standard you held everybody else to. How many of us would pass our own moral test that we held to everybody else? Schaefer says that every one of us would fail that. Every one of us would fail if we just simply held ourselves accountable to the same test that we expect from everyone else. We know right from wrong. We hold others to it and often fudge on ourselves. So the question comes, where does this intuitive morality, this restlessness, this guilt, this emptiness, where does it come from? The answer we get in Scripture is that it comes from the Holy Spirit. That person in the triune Godhead who convicts, who teaches, who conjoles, who guides, who calls every single one of us. Now, some of us might find that weird and say, but how can that be the role of the Holy Spirit? Why would God want to do, aren't those negative things? I don't like to think about God in negative ways. But I tend to think about it as painful, not negative. And we have to recognize that there's a difference between the two. Painful doesn't always mean negative. In fact, pain, as we've already said, can be very positive. There to protect us. There to help us. A week ago, there was a cold virus running through the Piva household. There was runny noses, there was hacking, sore chests, scratchy throats. And so <clears throat> what we decided to do is to pull out the Buckley's. Now, Buckley's is a liquid cough medicine that has ingeniously come up with the slogan, it tastes awful and it works. No point trying to hide the truth of how it tastes, and hopefully the end it works part of the slogan is what's going to pull you in, and you're going to say to yourself, I'm willing to go through the it tastes awful part because I believe that it works. Buckley's has run with this ad campaign in so many ways. They've had other taglines like, people swear by it and at it. Um, They've even had some commercials where they've given these pretend taste tests with a blindfolded guy with a cup of Buckley's on one side and a cup of spring break hot tub water on the other side. And then there's another commercial with a guy with a cup of Buckley's on one side and a cup of cardio workout perspiration on the other side. And when you watch the commercials, these guys, they taste both sides and they're like, I can't tell the difference. Is it the same thing? It tastes awful. But it works. If you want to get better, then you allow yourself the pain of swallowing the stuff to bring you back to health. 
Now, if you want to know if it really worked in our household and you want to talk to my kids, well, they won't be able to tell you. Because after they swallowed one mouthful, they refused to have any more to do with Buckley's. And so they preferred to stay sick. And when it comes to a cold, that's okay. But when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to more important things, refusing to drink the Buckley's can have devastating consequences. When we're talking about spiritual sicknesses, the consequence is huge. What the Holy Spirit is trying to do may taste awful. It may be painful. But he works. And resisting him is deadly. The Holy Spirit wants to convict you of your destructive, sinful way of living in order to save you. To give you a life that really matters, is meaningful, that counts. He works this way in both Christians and non-Christians, wooing them. If you want, you could even say seducing them to come find true love rather than to try to find it in so many ways that are only empty. Theologians refer to this as prevenient grace. It's that grace that goes before God's saving grace. It's God's grace that comes before his act. One of the things that we need to remember is that it is always God who pursues. None of us really find God. God has always been and always will be pursuing us. It's whether or not we will open our eyes and see our pursuer, surrender to him. God is the one that is active. He's not passive, hiding away, waiting for us to find and hunt him. It is him who is searching for us. He's the initiator. He's the one that comes before. He does all the work. Calling us to respond. Before the Holy Spirit can produce that Christ-like fruit that we've talked about in other sermons, he needs to bring us to a conviction of our sin that tastes awful, but works. Because when we become convicted of our sin, we now know there's something and someone that can do something about it. When Jesus talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, this is what he says in verse 7. Jesus says, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And listen to what the Holy Spirit's going to do. When he comes, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. 
I go away, Jesus says, and when I do, I will send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit, what he is going to do is he is going to convict the world of its sin. Convict the world of the righteous God. Convict the world that there will come a judgment day. There will come a time when we will all be held to account. As Jesus says, we know that the judgment will come because the judgment of our enemy has already happened. Satan has already been judged and already been condemned and has already been given his eternal sentence. And we all will face the judgment too. And the Holy Spirit is given as a blessing to the world, even though those sound like some negative things, has been given as a blessing to the world in the hopes that we will surrender to him. Most people recognize that there is a higher power. The atheist is the rare person in history. There have been very few atheists, even in countries where they try to mandate atheism, so much belief in God just goes underground. It's very hard to make people atheists. It's why even in Acts chapter 7, there was an altar to an unknown God. We know there's something out there. It's why even in our vast scientific age that, that seems to explain away everything through reason, there continues to be huge interest in the New Age or neo-pagan religious movements, in UFOs, in the paranormal, in angels, in Ouija boards, in psychic powers, in channeling the dead, and faith healing. Because we know there's more than what just science can explain. It's ironic how superstitious many Chinese still are. Even after decades and decades and decades of enforced atheism. They're still very superstitious people. You can't take the belief in something supernatural out of a person because our hearts know many times what our head doesn't. Romans says, from the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and all that God has made. They clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, so that they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Most people, though, however, in their rebellion, don't turn towards atheism and reject that because that seems so obvious. Unfortunately, though, however, most people in their rebellion, Romans goes on to say, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And so what they did is they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And the result was that their minds became dark and confused. What so often happens is not atheism, but what so often happens is incorrect views of God. Idolatry, superstitions, 
And a lot of it can creep into the church too. Sometimes many of our beliefs, if we are not rigorous in our hunger for studying who God is, a hunger for theology and scripture, we too have many superstitions where the Christian God becomes no more than a Santa Claus who sometimes the atheists correctly accuse us of believing in. So God in his grace sends the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, to draw us into the study of his word so that we can not only know ourselves, our fallenness, but also begin to know the true Savior and the true God. And rather than fashion a God in our own image, we surrender to the God who made us in his image. The Holy Spirit has even used atheists like Sigmund Freud to reveal our darkened hearts to the modern world. At the tail end of the Victorian era, which in the Victorian era had all the appearance, outward appearance of morality, that's what we think about when we think of the Victorian era. It had all the appearance of morality, but Freud began to meet with people talk with people, and found what was really going on inside and what people really were doing behind closed doors. And one of Freud's great and scandalous discoveries was that people carried around in their subconscious twisted, dark, secret desires and baggage. And that because it was never dealt with the Victorian era, it was suppressed rather than confessed, which is the Christian answer to those things. They suppressed it. It may explain why, and this is shocking to people, but I challenge you to do the study on it. it you will find that the rates of alcoholism and prostitution in 19th century England and America were astronomically higher than they are today. So much for the world's getting worse and worse. Astronomical, venereal diseases, all, you study that in 1850s, 1860s America, the alcoholism rate at that point was four times what it is today. Drug addiction, all of that. Astronomical. Church attendance way lower. Freud said that some of all of these skeletons in our closet that they were keeping suppressed were coming out in society in all these twisted and deviant ways. And Freud was right. And unfortunately, it, many times the church, not purposely, but unpurposely, encouraged it because it was, don't talk about it. Keep it a secret. Shh. Don't let anybody know your uncle's like that. Don't let anybody know your husband does that. Don't let anybody. It's all secret. Suppression. Confession is the Christian answer. A church that suppresses things can look wonderful on the outside, can look like a Victorian culture, but is deeply, deeply sinful and wounded on the inside. And we are to confess. Freud wrote in his 1929 Civilization and its Discontents, people are not gentle, friendly creatures wishing for love who simply defend themselves if they are attacked. 
Instead, a powerful measure of desire for aggression has to be reckoned with as part of our instinctual nature. As World War I and World War II so easily proved. The false beliefs in the 1800s of, oh, we're just a wonderful people getting better and better. And then when World War I came, oh, this is the last war. This will end it all. Everybody denying what Freud, an atheist, was pointing out. No, there's something inside us that's deep and wounded. And if it's not dealt with, World War I's not going to be the last of the wars. Because we're broken, sinful people that refuse to deal with what's going on on the inside. I mean, when I read all this, I think this is a pretty good biblical description of original sin. Freud was right on the money there. Our natural instincts are not gentle and friendly. Deep inside us, we are controlled by something subconscious. Why is it, like Freud said, that it doesn't matter if I'm 40 and even when I turn 50, that when I get around my parents, I act like a six-year-old again? Why does that happen? Why do I continue to do what I do not want to do? Isn't that what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 7? Freud was just pointing out the obvious. Unfortunately, the church didn't like what Freud had to say. Even though Freud was telling them the truth. Isn't it weird how the Holy Spirit can sometimes use prophets? And often the prophets do not come from within... The prophets are these renegade people from without that have very uncomfortable messages for the people within. Now, we don't have to buy all of Freud's therapy methods to agree with his diagnosis of the problem. Because his diagnosis was correct. We are damaged. We live under the tyranny of contradictory voices. We behave in ways that we don't seem to be able to control. It is simply a biblical truth that we are not born free. We are born as the inheritors of sin of Adam and Eve. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us of this. He will use preachers, he'll use teachers, he'll use conscience, he'll even use atheists like Freud. Whatever it takes to try to get through to us that we are broken. And unless we admit that outside the church, inside of the church, there's no healing for us. Unless we admit our brokenness and then from the leading of the Holy Spirit move us to confession, there's no healing. There's a great lost art in the church of the confessional. Sure, it became abused, but the original idea of confessing your sins to one another is where healing comes. Being able to say and to admit, I'm wrong. I'm broken. I'm wounded. I make commitments and I break commitments. I need a savior. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And as he does this, he keeps pointing you and saying, and the answer is Jesus. The answer is found in Christ. You need God. 
Because our ultimate sin that keeps us from God is not this or that misdeed. This is where we get it wrong. We, we make certain actions, certain misdeeds, the sin that keeps us from God. But that's not what the big sin is. Listen to again what Jesus says in John 16. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and the coming judgment. And the world's sin is what? Is unbelief in me. That's the world's sin. The world's ultimate sin is not racism, greed, slander, religious hypocrisy, homosexual behavior, or abortion. The world's greatest sin is blasphemy. If you have a friend that lives a homosexual lifestyle and is not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're wasting your time and effort to try to point out to him that that that's not a good, healthy lifestyle to live. Because it has to start first with where are you at with Jesus? That's what matters. And when people begin to surrender and get right with Jesus, then we can begin to deal with the other stuff. But that's not how we're known in the world. When I talk to my kids uh, about school and I say, so what do your friends think about Christians? They say, they think Christians are people who hate homosexuals. That's how we're known. Sad. Oh, and, and Christians are people that vote for Donald Trump. Those are, those are the two ways we're known. Why can't we be known as we're the people that love Jesus? We're the people that are trying to get everybody to be followers of Jesus. Even if, even if they find that annoying, that's okay. I don't care if you're annoyed because I passionately want you to follow Jesus. Because that's what I want to be known for. But why, is they, why are those other things the first things we're known for? Why are we known more for our political allegiances and for our stands on homosexuality than our conviction and our centrality of Jesus? The Holy Spirit's job is to call people to Christ. The world's biggest sin is denying Christ as God and propping up other gods be it self or Shiva, or anything in between. These are the gods that we battle with. The Christian call is continually Jesus. That was what the confessing church continually rebelled against Hitler and the Nazis with. Ultimately, at its end, certainly they stood for things like the dignity of life and um, not killing Jews and, and all those other things that were outproducts of it. But the number one thing the confessing church stood for is that Jesus is Lord, not Hitler. It was the same as the early church. It's not Caesar, it's Jesus. That is ultimately what the Holy Spirit is calling us for. And when we put Jesus central, when he is Lord, all of those other types of things, like helping minorities, helping the poor, standing up for all those, they are the outflow of Jesus as Lord. When we make those other things what we're all about, we simply become either legalistic or moralistic. Jesus is Lord. The Holy Spirit's job 
and I've said this before, how do you know if a church is Holy Spirit filled? It's not by healings or speaking in tongues or any of those things, which the Holy Spirit can and does do. It's a church that lifts up Jesus. That's a Holy Spirit filled church. Because the Holy Spirit is kind of a John the Baptist figure. The Holy Spirit's whole role is to lift up Jesus. In some ways, the Holy Spirit is a, don't make me the center of attention. I must decrease because he, Jesus, must increase. My role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and point them to Jesus. If a church is lifting up Jesus in everything they say and do and in all their behavior, it is a church filled with the Holy Spirit. This morning, we got to hear the stories of four people who have submitted their lives to Christ. I, I said to Jerry when we heard the testimony of Frank, the 82-year-old there, I, I just started weeping. There's something so beautiful. When anybody gets baptized, the youth or, or that, but there's something at 82 years old to walk down into those waters and not allow the pride of all the years to stand in the way and to say, I'm 82 years old, but I stand here today as a brand new creature. And I just loved his enthusiasm. I think that's the part that really touched me. Just the cheering and the celebrating. That's new life. That's Holy Spirit-filled life. We got to see that in four people today who have surrendered to Jesus. They've said, yes, he is the Lord of our life. He is who we're going to make number one. We're not always going to be following him perfectly but he is who we're committed to. You noticed in the testimonies, every single one of them had to come to a place of confession of their sin. To say, I'm broken. That's what baptism is all about. Baptism is symbolizing this washing away of sin. It's, bapt it's showing this dying, being buried in the waters, being drowned, being killed. That's the painful part. And as we saw it with one of the four, it was literally a bit painful. And then when we come out of the waters, it's this new life. Going into the baptismal waters is like swallowing Buckley's. But coming up out of the water is resurrection life, healing. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Maybe you've been coming to church for a number of years, maybe just recently, maybe you came today because a friend got baptized. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Are you at that place where you're ready to say, I no longer want to make sin dominate my life. I want to get rid of it. As painful as it is, I want to say no to sin. I want to confess my sin, not suppress it, and say yes to Jesus. I encourage you today, if that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to you, and if you're not a Christian, he is saying that to you, that you talk to somebody who is a believer and say, I want to surrender my life to Christ. You can talk to me after the service if you want as well. Maybe you have been at that place where you are a follower of Jesus, but you have never made that public demonstration of baptism to follow him.
in obedience of what he's called us to do. And I want to challenge you this morning to listen to the Holy Spirit as he is saying it is your time to get into those waters. It is your time to stand and publicly declare your allegiance to Christ as Lord. I know for some people that what keeps them away is even simple things like just fear of being in front of people and all of that. But I want to challenge you there too. Don't let those things become what stand in your way. Jesus is Lord. Don't let fear be your Lord. Jesus is Lord means nothing else matters but being obedient to Christ. Is he calling you to surrender to him in the waters of baptism. And if that is your case, I encourage you also, talk to me, give the church a call, send me an email, and we'll make sure that that happens. Jesus is Lord. Jesus said, it's good for me to go away, even though it seems kind of crazy. He is coming back, but it's good for me to go away because when I do, I will send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of its sin. He will convict the world of God's righteousness. He will convict the world of their need to surrender to Jesus Christ so that they can find true life. He may not taste good, but I promise you, you take in the Holy Spirit, he does work. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the gift of Jesus and for Jesus' sending of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we will not harden our hearts towards the message that you have for each and every one of us. You have this unique way in a single sermon of being able to communicate a variety of messages to the needs of each individual. And I pray, Lord, that those points or those lines or those things that you are saying to each and every one of us, that we will not be looking over our shoulder at others, but we will listen to what you're saying to us. And that you will convict us. And you will guide us, comfort us, and lead us, just as you promised into a deeper awareness of our sin and of a deep, grateful awareness of our Savior. We are your people. Jesus is our Lord. He is our identity. Amen.